I'm Laura Odata with the Cato Institute, and today we're going to be talking about the Disclose Act and campaign finance issues, which I think are important all the time, but they become especially timely in election years. And there's a lot of things that have happened recently that make it even more so, which John will address in his talk. So going into our speaker, he's John Samples, the director of Cato's Center for Representative Government, which studies campaign finance regulation, delegation of legislative authority, term limits, and the political culture of limited government. He is an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University and the author, author of The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, which I have with me and is a good time to note that all of our books and policy analysis are available to Hill staff free of charge. So if you ever want anything, just contact me and we're happy to get it up for you. John has also previously served as the director of Georgetown University Press and before that as vice president of the 20th Century Fund. And with that, I will hand things over to John. I appreciate the opportunity to speak today and I appreciate everyone coming here. Um, over the next year or so, I think it's very likely that you'll hear, as we've heard uh, over time, that campaign money, spending on campaigns and money in politics, and particularly the Citizens United decision, are the most important thing in politics. Now, I believe for some time uh, that, in some sense, uh, all of this talk is overwrought, that money in politics is not nearly as important as people say it is because they say it is so important, in fact, if you listen very closely, you'll get the impression that it's the only thing that matters. Well, money in politics is so often uh, an effect rather than a cause, I think, and I think the social science on it bears that out. Uh, but it is true that money in politics is important. It's important because it can be directly tied to political speech and more generally to political activity. And those are protected rights under the First Amendment. They're protected for good reasons because there's very strong um, incentives for people in government to try to control speech critical of them, speech that's important for informing voters in a Republican uh, government. So it is important, but it's not nearly the, uh, uh, the over th only thing that matters in politics, as we, we will hear. Uh, over the next year or so. We've, in fact, we've already begun to hear that uh, just the other day, of course. In Wisconsin, there was an election, a recall election, to try to uh, end Governor Scott Walker and his reforms in Wisconsin uh, that was lost by the recall effort. And as you, uh, pro if you were watching television, which I imagine many of you were, and the reporting on this was really quite remarkable because uh, as you, the one thing that sticks in my mind from that uh, reporting that evening was the, the guy who sort of lost it on national television and uh, started sort of sobbing about the end of democracy. So in a sense, for, the, for many people, Citizens United and, this, and la later people who are, I think, more self-interested and more uh, partisan players in Wisconsin started talking about Citizens United being the source of all of these problems and uh, really bringing an end to democracy. What they might have said more accurately is that, uh, at least in terms of the cases involved, were Citizens United and Speech Now, Speech Now versus Federal Election Commission being the case that actually allowed people uh, to form super PACs and to have individuals as well as groups involved in politics. So in fact, a lot of people feel threatened by Citizens United, by the changed campaign finance atmosphere. And when politicians or other people feel threatened, there's going to be a response. So I want to talk about some of that uh, tonight, or this afternoon, and uh, how to think about it, or at least how I, uh, how I see it. Let me mention just uh, a couple of things about Citizens United. 
perhaps now the, the case has been widely discussed, but uh, uh, basically the Citizens United decision and the decision that followed it, um, uh, speech now, starts with, is a vindication of spending money on politics to produce political speech. It starts with the idea that there's two kinds of people in the world, in the political world, insiders and outsiders. Insiders, that is, people that are connected to the people you work for, to candidates for office, to officials, uh, co congressional members, and also to people running for office, uh, and to political parties. They are the insiders, and they are covered by one set of rules, all right, which is campaign contribution rules and so on. But there's another group who are outside of that, who are said to be are independent or outsiders in the system, and they want to spend money on political speech. Now, until Citizens United, it had been the Supreme Court's doctrine that corporations in particular, but corporations and trade unions, and also anybody that took the form of a legal form of a corporation, which was organized, a lot of organized interests, like the Sierra Club and so on, that these groups also, Congress could prohibit them from spending money, not by giving it in contributions to uh, members of Congress or to candidates for office or to the political parties, but that they could, Congress could prohibit them spending money directly on speech. That is, the ad, uh, prior to Citizens United, there was a case called Austin versus Chamber of Commerce, and what uh, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce wanted to do uh, and ran up against Michigan law was they wanted to have a political ad that said uh, this uh, candidate for uh, Congress uh, has all these positions and talked about the positions and said, we at the Chamber of Commerce think these positions mean he would be a better uh, candidate for Congress and would be better for the American economy. That's all it was. It didn't have, and it was just direct to spending. They wanted to put that up on television and they couldn't do so because uh, Michigan law made it illegal for them to do so. It was, uh, it, and in uh, 1989, Supreme Court said that's fine because if you let all these corporations and others go around spending money on uh, this sort on speech, it will corrupt the political system because they have uh, uh, lots of money that's not doesn't really reflect pu public support. Citizens United, <coughs> oh excuse me, <coughs> Citizens United overturned that decision and said that free speech is free speech, and if these outside groups want to spend money on uh, political ads, they can, including corporations, labor unions, and again, these organized interests that also would be freed up by this. So there's been a response to that and more spending in 2010 and 2012. The response also, there's also been a response uh, politically. We, you know, I mean, in a sense, um, Citizens United uh, and the aftermath, you've seen 2010 was a great change election, 2012 may or may not be. But on the other hand, of course, 2006 and 2008 were great change elections too. It's not clear that Citizens United itself is the origins of it. It's not clear in Wisconsin that Citizens United uh, and the spending, additional spending, was a big cause of what happened. Consider that in 2010, the same two candidates ran against each other in Wisconsin that ran in 2012. There was a great deal more spending uh, on that, uh, on that particular race and on the recall than there was in 2010. Uh, Governor Walker won the recall election by 1.1% more of the vote. 
So the money had a very uh, limited effect. He won by 5-8 in uh, 2010 and a little over, uh, I think it's 5-2, and then a little over 6 in 2012. Money in itself had a uh, very limited effect, I think, in that context. However, money, I think, frightens people, particularly people in office, because it's something that, uh, particularly money that can be uh, raised very quickly and can give people uh, a, a, t a way of uh, being very critical of people who are already in office. Um, so it's brought forth responses from Congress. One response is amend the Constitution. And so right now there's about 16 proposed constitutional amendments in response to Citizens United, uh, uh, with two of them in the Senate, 14 in the House. Uh, they're remarkable, actually. Uh, I think it's likely that uh, none of them will ever be, become part of the Constitution. It may well be that the, the people who introduce them don't believe they can become part of the Constitution. Some of them are quite extreme. Two of them, uh, in fact, ban private spending on elections completely. In other words, two of the amendments say that the only money that can be spent on elections in the United States is public funding or mo money raised by taxes. And that would lead to the remarkable um, outcome that people who tried to spend money, their own money, on uh, buying ads on television would be subject to criminal fines. They would be arrested, presumably. And one of the uh, amendments says that criminal penalties are prescribed for, for this activity. Pretty remarkable. The more serious and uh, more common effect of these amendments is to assert political con uh, congressional control, a right of power of Congress to regulate uh, both contributions and expenditures on elections. Now this is remarkable because in the context of campaign finance, all of these uh, amendments would overturn not only Citizens United, not only uh, Speech Now, but would o overturn the, the base, I think, the basic um, uh, decision in the campaign finance area, Buckley versus Vallejo in the sense that Buckley denied to Congress the power to put limits on expenditures, right? Because if you're spending money uh, as a candidate, you are exercising free speech, and limitations limit the amount of speech. Uh, these, w as I understand it, these amendments would resuscitate that right to limit expenditures in general, not just independent expenditures, spenders, expenditures by outside uh, forces or outside groups, but also by everybody. So if you're going to get an amendment, in a sense, the uh, proposers are saying you might as well get it all. And if you, ha if Congress, you know, there's very clear evidence if Congress had the power to limit expenditures, they would use it. The very first um, bill that passed Congress uh, in what I would call the post, the new campaign finance era that begins after 1968. 1968 was a year in which television changed American politics, both in a number of different ways. An incumbent president was essentially driven out of the race and so on. By it was thought television. The very first uh, bill introduced and passed uh, one house of the um, uh, regarding campaign finance in 1969 was the one that limited spending on broadcasting. Right, so broadcasting causes a problem in 1968. You get a limits on it, so you would get limits on expenditures, um, and I think a, a fair dose of of incumbent protection. Uh, but again, um, 
all of these are things out there that are supposed to overturn Citizens United. They would do that. They would do much more than that. They're, and because of the, the constitutional process being the way it is to amend it, it's, it's unlikely these things will get uh, close to, to coming through. But, uh, you know, it's, it's possible that something similar uh, uh, would at least have a, a run at it. It's not clear. What Congress, do, what Citizens United does do very clearly in the decision itself is uh, in the middle of a lot of muddled thinking by the court on disclosure, uh, Justice Kennedy says that, you know, disclosure is clearly uh, a way that, you, that uh, you can deal with spending by outside groups. So we have the, a version, a renewed version of what is called the Disclose Act which is a disclosure bill primarily. And that right now is in the House and the Senate. I want to talk a little bit about just the Senate, because this is the, the thing that is the Disclose Act has gone through now at least a couple of years uh, of uh, refinement. And if something comes out of Congress eventually, uh, it might be the Disclose Act. It would look something like that. Now, what's the content? I'm going to focus on the one in the Senate, which is narrower and also is the, the Senate is the real hump. That is, you've got to have 60 votes to get a Disclose Act uh, out of the Senate. And it, so it ha it's smaller than the House Disclose Act, but it's also the one that is most likely to uh, become law, at least, or has the best chance of that. So the Disclose Act in the Senate applies, it focuses on outside, these outside groups, specifically corporations, un labor unions, Super PACs, which are the, the speech now groups of individuals, uh, and then a uh, 501c4 groups, which is part of the tax code. These are basically groups that are uh, organized under the tax code that can spend part of their money on political activities. And then an older group, uh, an older designation also under the tax code called 527 groups. If you followed uh, campaign finance through the aughts, you will know of 527 groups. They were one way uh, prior to uh, Citizens United to have spending by outsiders in the system. And what's, uh, you know, it's a fairly straightforward and simple bill. In some ways, it requires disclosure of supporters of who spend more than $10,000 uh, or more. Uh, in actual political ads and so on, there's disclosure of the top five donors who give to a group who then run some political speech. In some cases, only the top two donors are, are required to be disclosed. That It depends on whether you're on television or on radio. There's also a what's called disclaimers in it, that is, a, or a stand by your ad statements. And what this means typically is, and this is in the bill, is that someone who is the head of a group who is running the ad has to appear in the ad and has to say certain words. Now, that may sound like coerced speech, and it is, but uh, it's, uh, it has been, uh, you know, they believe that the Supreme Court will support this. Uh, and it's, it's typically th that the person has to appear, they themselves, a person has to appear and they have to say, my name is this, I am the head of that, and I stand by this ad in, in certain ways. Uh, also, what goes with that in some cases, depending, there's some administrative discretion, is you've got to tell who your funders are, top two, top five, who, who brought you this ad, who's, who paid money for it. 
The bill also has a number of different things about trying to, uh, particularly with, there's a great concern about these 501c4s, that they are not disclosed now and that they, there would be uh, money, whoever is funding them would have to be disclosed. So there's a great deal of effort to, dis to hunt down those people, as it were, those institutions. There's also a fair amount of discretion granted to the Federal Election Commission in the bill to make additional rules as you go forward. That's typically part of the case you would find with the FEC, but it seems to me that this is not the whole story. There would be a significant, uh, a significant amount of discretion for the FEC in carrying this out. Now, what's the problem with this? Uh, I want to make some comments generally about that. Uh, typically in, in these issues, now well, let me drop back for a minute to sort of note where we are here. Uh, if you've been around campaign finance for a while in these kinds of debates, and these debates have gone on for 30 or 40 years, and they've been about basically the same things in many ways. The, what you're talking about shifts. Many of the arguments are the same. The remarkable thing about where we are now is this. Um, up until Citizens United, uh, and most, for most of the history of from Buckley 1976 onward, really the discussions are about what sort of uh, limitations should we have on, on spending, on money, what kind of, uh, and in many cases, prohibitions, or in some cases, like with corporations and unions, what kind of prohibitions should we have? Those debates as long as Citizens United remains constitutional law are over with because you can't prohibit this kind of speech. So essentially the debates are going to center around disclosure because disclosure is the only real robust uh, regulatory tool that is left. Prohibitions are gone. Limitations on speech outside the system like contribution limits don't make sense because you're not making contributions or expendi expenditure limits. Uh, have the same problem because under Buckley, expenditure limits are unconstitutional. So the debate is centering on disclosure. This is a remarkable, remarkable change. Uh, and as long as it centers on disclosure, it's not going to talk, be talking about prohibitions, and uh, indeed that can't be the case. Now the debate about disclosure is this. What is the problem with disclosure? Disclosure has been approved by the Supreme Court because it prevents corruption if you, in, in regards to contributions. And I'll return to the other, in a minute, to the other justification for disclosure. Uh, the problem with disclosure is chilling speech, right? That is, that once people uh, are disclosed, that they're supporting particularly a controversial political candidate, they will be attacked or perhaps even threatened and so on. And if you want to see an, a case study of this, read Justice Thomas's uh, uh, partial dissent in Citizens United. He was the only one in that case that thought the disclosure rules should be looked at more, should be uh, unconstitutional too. That, and it is because in a case that he quotes extensively from in Washington, uh, people were actually threatened for their political, uh, and a lot of bad, the publicity led to a lot of nastiness that would lead to you or me to not get involved in politics. So the real issue is publicity following attacks and does it keep people out of the system? This is particularly important for publicly held corporations, that is corporations owned by shareholders, because really, you know, I mean, one of the ways I think about campaign finance is not so much about general welfare regulation, but sort of partisanship and political considerations. 
And so if you're, uh, if you're trying to, if you campaign finance regulation is about trying to keep the other side from participating too much because that causes problems for you in your reelection effort or in your elections, then uh, knowing the who corporations, uh, which corporations are giving which money to whom means you can, as it were, expose them, organize them, and make them pay a price in terms of uh, their customers. You expose, and so that would be a way of giving them incentives not to be involved in politics, which otherwise is known as chilling speech in Supreme Court doctrine. Uh, as for individuals, too, I really don't think the, the chilling issue and disclosure is, you know, I don't think the people who think about this politically are going to be much concerned about it affecting people who are already in the system. Uh, and if you think of got the Texas donor Bob Perry, for example, or for that matter, New Yorker jo George Soros, these are people that have given enormous sums of money, very engaged in politics. Uh, and in fact, if you read the New York Times, you know about these people. I mean, Bob Perry seems to appear in every uh, story about campaign finance. Um, I'm sure as individuals, you know, they don't like having been identified as the demons uh, in American politics who cause all the problems in the world. But they've gotten used to it, more or less, or at least they're willing to put up with it to be involved in politics. You're not going to drive them out, probably, or, and if you haven't hurt their business interest already, you're not going to. They're going to bear up under it, and they're going to uh, continue being involved. However, for the person who maybe is thinking about getting involved in politics, the, uh, the corporate head or the interest group leader, or perhaps even a labor union leader, um, I think that's what the disclosure is really uh, is going to have an effect. Because that kind of person is going to think twice, right? And if you wonder why they would think twice, I would encourage you to Google the word Coke on, uh, on the internet, right? And some of it you get is just straightforward information, but most of it isn't. And in fact, um, it may well be that the ease of information and the ease of uh, imputing uh, motives, impugning motives and so on, uh, with the internet really ups the amount of abuse that uh, donors will have to take. So at the margins, it would be, I think, if we expose, make public that people are involved in highly contentious uh, uh, political, and I'm, uh, as I say that, it just occurs to me, just think about what the United States is going to be like in October of this year, right? It's very likely that the political presidential race will be well within the margins of error. Nobody's going to know who's going to win as late as October 30th. People are going to be nuts, right? They're going to be wound up. And um, in that context, you're really going to have a, a lot of, of stuff that I think will uh, uh, hope to chill speech and so on. So that's, that's the argument. It's been the argument along. The Supreme Court has not been particularly uh, forthcoming about that. There's a, the FEC created an exception for groups that can prove that they're under uh, uh, some kind of threat, and uh, there's been one group, essentially one party, that's been given that. So, but this is a price that has to be paid for disclosure. But I think with independent spending, there's a bigger issue here, which is this. 
the traditional justification for uh, disclosure is, doesn't apply to Citizens United and afterwards. That is, if you, if, why do you have to, do, to uh, disclose contributions to your bosses, to a candidate for office? Well, the idea there is that if I give your a member of Congress or a candidate for office money, they might give me favors. If we disclose that, they'll be l less likely to have corrupt bargains, right, over campaign finance contributions. So preventing corruption is one thing, and the idea also is if you do that, then you, pr you also work against the appearance of corruption because the people are willing to do this in public. So it's an anti-corruption rationale in general. The thing about Citizens United and afterwards is they are not giving this money to, to members of Congress. They are not giving it to people challenging members of Congress. They're not giving it to the two political parties. They are organizing into groups that are, by law, independent of all of that. So the justification, the anti-corruption justification, doesn't work. And in fact, in Citizens United, uh, Justice Kennedy says that independent spending, and that's what the jargon term is, cannot be corrupting. Well, so you can't disclose it, right? No, you can't, because there's another justification for disclosure that goes back to the 70s, which is basically educating voters. Here's the idea. If I, for example, uh, you know, don't know a lot, many Americans don't know a lot about politics, don't know who's running, doesn't, don't know who's representing them, if, uh, if I can look around and find information that is sort of a way of uh, bypassing uh, more difficult issues, but giving me good information about how I should be voting. For example, if I'm a liberal and I look and see George Soros is spending $75 million or actually $25 million against uh, George W. Bush in 2004, I will con conclude, and I don't know if there were any liberals in America that hadn't already <coughs> concluded this, but if they hadn't, they can conclude, gee, the, I, I think George W. Bush may not be a liberal. Uh, maybe I should vote against him, right? This is the basic idea that you can get from th th these, uh, and it's a, in a sense it makes sense. I mean, you, do you trust people that just say stuff or people that put their money where their mouth is? Well, the, George Soros, or the, the, he's a Bob Perry, put their money where their mouth is, you can take it seriously, if you know their political positions, maybe you should follow them in, in sort of a way of educating you about how to vote. And, and so this would be, this is the justification for the forcing disclosure of independent spending because it'll help voters do that. Now the problem is I don't think disclose uh, educates very well. Uh, in other words, I f it falls short on its own standards. That is, what do they do? What does it require? Well, you're going to get a, C a CEO saying, "I, John Samples, uh, and I'm the head of something, or I'm the head of an organization, and I approve this ad." Right? Think about it. <coughs> Voters, many of whom, maybe 40 percent of whom, aren't really sure or don't know who represents them in Congress, are somehow going to know that this person that has been uh, revealed to them, they're going to know something about them politically and use that information to guide their votes. Now what they might do is say if I, Bob Perry, head of uh, whatever home construction company he has, they might say, well, hmm, he seems to be the head of a business and I don't like business. 
or I like business, right? But that's still not particularly um, revealing information, particularly because voters have this paradox of it's very hard for rationally to gain a lot of information about politics. I would point out also, though, that the information is probably going to be used negatively. People are going to use it to vote against somebody because they're head of a labor union or head of a, uh, a um, corporation, maybe. Or they might not. The, the names of the organizations that may be revealed may not be the Fund for a Better America or something like that, which may actually be the name of one. I hope not. I was trying to make one up there. But you get the idea. The names will be very general, very good. They won't convey any information. The other, but the thing it will do in some ways, in sense, the sense that it's taken up, and I think the reason disclose exists and disclosure works politically, is very negative things are going to be said about a lot of people that are big uh, uh, donors. We, and the Soros, the examples I've given to you already, Soros, Perry, the Koch brothers, and so on, these are people who have really been demonized. So you're really going to have trying to move voters in a with very negative uh, attacks on donors. There's going to be much, very few people saying, oh, gee, well, that guy, you know, I support that position. I know that person shares my views. I'm going to, I'm going to vote for the candidate because they, they are funding ads. You know, in a sense, this, the problem of disclose and disclosure is that they don't meet the educating voters criterion of disclosure because they make um, public deliberations, public discourse during campaigns, they make it much more irrational. They focus on individuals. The individuals are then demonized as a way of trying to either uh, move votes or to keep them out of the political system. And you end up with a completely ad hominem kind of debate about politics. Now, you can say if you're a realist, and I'm pretty much a realist about politics, well, that's just it, or Justice Scalia saying if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. But from the larger perspective of disclosure, which is supposed to be about educating voters, it's just making voters more irrational than they would have been otherwise, right? Otherwise, they might have been ignorant otherwise, but they're going to be both irrational and, and fairly negative. So that's a problem with disclosure. It doesn't meet its own standards. Okay, so what's the skeptics of uh, campaign finance, which I would count myself, campaign finance regulation? What, what, do, what do you do now? One answer is do nothing. You just keep fighting about disclosure. You try to get them to take stuff out of it, which they already have on the Senate side. Um, you point out the speech is being chilled, and less often you point out that it leads to irrationality in, in public deliberations, and you hope nothing happens. And really, I should say at this point, disclosure, uh, what this is about primarily is maybe about corporations, but about uh, these 501c4s, which is a, is a concern by some that they will be funding uh, corporate money that's undisclosed into the political system. The problem with doing nothing is this, it seems to me. After this election cycle, uh, in which probably the Republicans will enjoy an advantage in outside money, an advantage that will lead to parity, probably, with President Obama, in the, uh, if the history of campaign finance is, tells us anything is the other side just doesn't give up and fall over, right? 
Democrats were behind before in the 1990s. In 2002, they pulled even with outside money and started raising outside and, in, and as so-called inside money. And they've kept that advantage for the last uh, decade, right? So what you would see is the 2012 would lead the Democrats to start raising outside money. And so if you're, you work for a Republican, and if that Republican is from a, a district in which Mitt Romney gets 49 or 50 percent of the vote, you're going to see super PACs in 2014. Your boss is going to see. He won't, presumably. Um, in 2014, super PAC armadas are going to start showing up in your district, funded by George Soros. Or who, there must be someone else that, that will show up uh, also. Uh, maybe those Hollywood people will show up, you know. Um, and they will say mean things about your boss, uh, all of which trying to get them unelected. The history, again, is this. McCain-Feingold attracted 20% of the votes in the House and the Senate, the final version that passed, from the Republican Party members. If you look at the, those Republicans that voted for McCain-Feingold, the Bush 2000 take in their district was 49%. As long as there's going to be Republicans and as long as Democrats are going to get back in the game, there's going to be threats to vulnerable Republicans and they're going to wonder if there's anything they can do. And let me be honest here, and this is not a moral condemnation of these people, Democrat or Republican. If I were in their shoes, I also would probably, I'd like to think I wouldn't be, I'd like to say, well, free speech, let's just have more of it. But if people were saying untrue, mean things about me, I'd be inclined to think, how can I stop them from doing that? And the answer, the only answer left, really at this point, unless someone comes up with some smart new stuff, is disclosure. So disclose, and my point is, disclosure may well win down the line because it may have bipartisan or a significant amount of bipartisan support. And Senator McConnell may either not be here in the sense he's retired or he uh, may not be able to control that, ultimately. The Republican Party has been pretty good. Remember, the House wanted to get rid of 527s about uh, six years ago. The Senate, Republicans in the Senate killed that. McConnell's been a tremendous source of support for free speech in general, even when in that crucial era when it worked against part his party's interest, I think. But it's not clear that that will continue. So is there another alternative? And what I want to be exploring at Cato in the next, is there a kind of disclosure that can do what we needed to do, which is not chill speech and yet can inform voters? And let me just finish by saying the political scientist Bruce Kane has proposed something like this, in which instead of talking about people who, after all, nobody really knows who they are by and large, uh, you talk about what we're interested in is interest, something like that so that voters can understand not just who's giving the money, which doesn't really help them all that much, but w where the money comes from, right? which is what they presumably are interested in. And if that you can do that, then there's the issue of uh, you don't ha also aren't talking about people, and the ad hominem nature of uh, disclosure will be lost, which would be a good thing. So I don't know if this will work. I'm not endorsing it. But it's a possibility. But I would point out that, in general, if I wouldn't count on the fact that there's not going to be disclosure if you just keep fighting it and do nothing, because that doesn't seem to me like a high probability proposition. So thanks.